Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. This is Stephen Robles and we have an awesome special guest on the show this week, Mary Jo Sharp. Her new book releases today. As you're listening to it, you can get it right now. And the title of it is Why I Still Believe. And before we talk to her, I want to mention one more time, Impact 360. Mary Jo Sharp is huge into apologetics and teaches it. And Impact 360 is another great resource. Again, they have those online courses that we talk about. And so we would encourage you to go to impact360.org. Check out their courses on truth, worldview, defending the resurrection. And don't forget, you can use promo code FREEMIND to get $25 off those courses. Now, without further ado, here is our special guest, Mary Jo Sharp. Well, we are so glad to have Mary Jo Sharp on Free Mind this week. She's the founder and director of Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry and assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. And just found out you're back in Portland, Oregon, your hometown. So thanks for joining us, Mary Jo. Hey guys, it's so great to be on your show. Now, if we want to visit you out there, do I have to get my passport expedited? Um, <laughs> That's cold. So we uh, we met Mary Jo at yes. a Lifeway conference. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Was it about was it two years ago? Yeah, it sounds two or three. I don't. I actually don't remember. <laughs> yeah, some time back, and I was well. Let me let me rewind just a little bit. Stephen and Nerv and I worked at our, our church, the Crossing Church at Tampa, and I think this was about four or five years ago. They, for their women's Bible study, decided to do one of your Lifeway studies, and I forget was it called uh, Why I Believe, or do you remember which one it was? <laughs> Another why title. Right. Why do you believe that? Yes. Why do you believe that? that? And I was really excited because it was like the first apologetics type of thing that the women's group at the church had done before. So I was like, yeah. And I had heard of you you before, I think, with uh, Stand to Reason and Greg Kokel. I think you did an interview with him a long time ago. So you were one of the the original gangster female apologists (laughs) that were kind of popping on the scene. And um, and so I was excited to see that the Crossy they actually brought me in to speak one day with one of your chapters, so that was fun. But then we saw you mm-hmm. at a uh, Lifeway event shortly after that, and I was excited because we have done a lot of traveling with Lifeway over the years, and they're an amazing organization. And you know, not to criticize them, but they're not exactly the bastion of apologetics. And so I was, I was, I was really excited that they did that book mm-hmm. with you in the first place, and that they were having you on some of these events. I was like, this is a really good thing for Lifeway because we're big fans of apologetics, and we'll get into that, you know, more as we go through this discussion. But it was, I was really uh, happy. We were happy to to just get to meet you and, yeah. and talk with you a little bit and hear your your story, kind of the story behind apologetics. But this book, oh let my. me just say, so good. Yeah, this is probably one of the better apologetics books Jeez. I've read. And and I read it first. I got we got the mm-hmm. pre advance. So this is coming out. You guys are hearing this today. The book is available. So y'all run and grab this book. Oh. You're going to we're going to talk about it. But it's called Why I Still Believe. And what's the subtitle there, babe? A former atheist reckoning with the bad reputation Christians give a good God. Yeah, so pretty intriguing title and we got the pre-sale version and and read through it and i I honestly was going to take a week and read it but i couldn't put it down and so (laughs) it took me about a day and a half and i was like you know this is same here yeah yeah, i was like this is one of the most fun (laughs) apologetics but i was like i I knew immediately i was like nerva will love this and Mm -hmm. you know i like to read all kind of nerdy stuff so i cannot i can't no longer (laughs) recommend people to read stuff because i like it um, but <laughs> this was one that I was like, I know that even if you're not into apologetics, you're going to love it. And and I love how you put it in story form. It It's really captivating. It's like a page turner, but you kind of sneak the apologetics in there without it being on the forefront. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was, yeah, I thought it was really good. And we want to talk with you about it today, some of the, the, the backstory and maybe have some few questions. And I don't know, what were your impressions first reading it, babe? And I know we have Mary Jo just- and we're just talking to each other, so. <laughs> Um, if you want to, <laughs> you know what's fun in the book to me is how she's so um, authentic and honest about her dynamics with her husband as she's um, just capturing her uh, stories of how she got into apologetics. But I love the family dynamics, the marital dynamics, and the stories are so vivid. You're like reading it, and you can just so picture it in your head. And with every chapter, you get smarter and smarter because she's talking about. <laughs> 
stuff about why Christianity is true. And so it's good. I enjoyed. And there were some things I found out about you that I did not know. And I'll, I'll hold it till we, we get to that point in the interview. Yeah, but sure. I was like, wow, I had no idea. Okay. but So, yeah. So no, no, let's just let's kind of go. Let's kind of start with the beginning sure. here. Mm-hmm. Now, many people think Mary Jo, you know, you're probably born and raised in Alabama. Good old, good old Southern Bible Belt girl, but but in fact you weren't. And so, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you grew up and yeah, just what's your background with Christianity? I was just enjoying hearing you two. I could listen to you guys. <laughs> That's been a problem, like for a long time. Ever since I got into apologetics, people are like telling me things. If you know, you were just born and raised in the church and the Bible Belt, and if you'd ever get out of your bubble, you'd see that nobody believes like you do. And that's completely opposite. I was uh, raised outside of the church. I was raised in a part of the country that has been known for being one of the least religious parts of the country for some time now. Um, I even found an article dating back to the 50s on the uh, non-religious participation of the state of Oregon. Wow. Uh, So it's been a long time that it's been this way. And so my my upbringing was not overtly Christian. In fact, you know, I wouldn't have known basic things like what does it mean to be saved? I wouldn't have known what that meant if you had talked to me about that because mm-hmm. my family uh though they didn't take me to church, you know, they did bring me up with this great love of the outdoors. And so we spent a lot of time um camping and out in nature. My parents also loved, my dad was a huge Carl Sagan fan. He loved nature and science shows. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And my mom was a huge arts fan of the arts. Uh, So was my dad. So I did a lot of, um, I got to see a lot of the beauty in nature and the beauty of what uh, mankind could do through the arts and sciences. And those sorts of things, I think, were originally a draw to me that there must be something else to this world uh, than we just live and die and that's all there is. Mm. Mm. It's not just a pale blue dot. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. How did you come then to, quote unquote, get saved? Or, you know, because you and, you and your husband, when y'all married, were you a Christian? And how did you get into Christianity? What was that process like? Well, for me, it was uh, going back to my high school years, as I was beginning to wonder, you know, is there any meaning to my life? Is this all there is? I had a high school music teacher who was my band director, who was a Christian who had never shared his faith with anyone before. And he he took a risk with me because I was a student, you know, this is a public school. Hmm. And he shared his faith with me by giving me a Bible. And he said, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. Wow. And he told me, I, I didn't realize, but he prayed with me after that. I had forgotten Aww. that part. And uh, <laughs> then I didn't respond very favor- favorably. If I, I didn't know that part either. <laughs> I just kind of was like, oh, okay, great. Um, but <laughs> uh, I read that Bible and um I began to see that it was not what I had expected. It's not the caricature of Christianity that I saw on TV and in the movies growing up. Mm-hmm. And um, it seemed very real to me. Like these guys were just reporting what they saw. And in fact, Luke really impressed me mm-hmm. with the way that he, you know, he just, he'll t- say things like, not only does he say he's investigating all these things so that his friend Theophilus can know the certainty of the things he's been taught, mm-hmm. but also he's saying things like he's just reporting stuff. Like Jesus will do a miracle and Luke just reports it. Like he healed this guy. And then the next day he goes off into another town. It's just like mm-hmm. reportage. Sure. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it really impressed me that, um, this could all be true. Um, and I started to go off when I went off to college, I started to go to church for the first time on my own. So I'm like totally opposite statistic there. Uh, (laughs) And I eventually I found a church where, um, I heard the gospel clearly preached and I trusted in Jesus, uh, for my salvation. Now I, in that time frame that I'm, I'm kind of covering over a, a span of years, I met my husband before I became a Christian he was very backslidden Christian, um, and we ended up getting married, having a baby while in college, and then I end up uh, becoming a Christian and committing to Christ mm-hmm. after that. What did your parents think when you started to tell them what you were doing and going to church and such? Um, they, you know, their reaction wasn't real favorable. My dad, I actually don't remember exactly how my dad responded. I just know it wasn't 
he wasn't affirming of it in any way. My mom was a little more vocal about it, um, especially when she found out it was Southern Baptist. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was not real happy about that. Um, and then my family just, there was some chiding, there was some teasing. You know, I have friends who have left um, Islam and it was it was devastating for their family. And they went through really, really hard times with them and it was a lot of anguish. Mine was more of... I, I was kind of concerned they thought I'd been brainwashed by the Southerners or something like that. You know? <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and I thought there was going to be some chiding about it. And there was, but it wasn't, it was awkward, but it, they didn't not accept me. You know, that it wasn't like a shunning or anything. And I love this part of your story. You were a music major. Oh yeah. I have an undergrad. Music? Yeah. I have an undergrad in music. And what emphasis of music was it? Um, performance, vocal, or uh, instruments? It was uh, education, so okay. it covered instrumental and vocal. Yeah, awesome. And so you and your husband get married, and you're in college, and it goes to a part in the book where he, you guys start working at a church together, and then a series of events happens that begins to kind of uh, shape your faith. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? So I'm not sure exactly how far back you want me to go. <laughs> well, actually, there's there's, sure. there's this one interesting story you told that was kind of convicting and, and alerting. Oh, you so said good. I think it was the week after you gave your life to the Lord, you came back to church and you were really excited, and you were like, "Man, this is going to be a new group of people, and, and it's going to be awesome, and we're going to do this Jesus thing." And and this lady, I think the pastor's wife, kind of hit you up in the foyer in yep. uh, the foyer, <laughs> the and, narthex, uh, <laughs> and uh, kind of. Maybe maybe it was a little less welcoming. Can you tell us maybe maybe Even start that. there and then go sure. into a little bit of in, when you guys started getting to ministry because that that to me was what set up mm-hmm. uh, just the uh, kind of the subtitle of the book was what you experienced in church not kind of lining up with the ideals you had. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So I started. Let's start with that first one. I included that first one even though it's not like there's not abuse going on, you know, like we see some of these scandals or anything, but it's the very first day that I am coming in as a new believer. And the pastor's wife is standing at the entrance to the sanctuary. And this is the wife of the guy that led me to the Lord. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm, you know, my expectations from what I've been reading in the Bible about how the believers are supposed to treat one another and be patient with one another. And there's no condemnation in Christ. I'm like building up this list in my mind of what believers are going to be like and what like community is going to be like. So I'm, and I'm also very young and naive. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I, uh, I walk into this church and I'm still all Portland, Oregon with my short spiky hair. And (laughs) um, I've got, I'm very poor. I've got two dresses. So I'm wearing one of the two that I own. And I don't know what people know about Portland, Oregon. We're not flashy people. Okay. okay. We're not, we're just kind of grungy or, yeah. you know, we, a lot of people tease us that we're all, oh, we always look like we're ready to go hiking, you know, that's, <laughs> sort of granola, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's the kind of person you're dealing with. We're, we're, we tend to be more conservative. And, um, so anyway, I'm walking up to the uh, sanctuary and the pastor's wife is greeting people. And so I'm expecting like a, Hey, welcome to the body of Christ, whatever. I wouldn't have known those phrases, but you know, like a welcome. And the first thing I get is a once over. She looks me up and down and says, Oh, honey, we're going to have to find you better clothes. And, and I'm, I didn't uh, know what to say. Like I, wow. it's, you know, again, like I'm saying, it's not like an abusive situation, but at the same time, it's these, this sets up what's going to carry on throughout the book. Like it's from the very mm. start. There's judgmentalism where there should be love and patience and acceptance. Um, I remember looking down at myself like, what is she talking about? <laughs> like, wow. this, is, this is one of my best. This is my best of the two. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and I had, I had checked this dress out with my Southern boy who grew up in the church. Like, are you sure I'm okay? Are you sure I'm okay? Sure. Are you sure this is good? Hmm. And he's like, yeah, you look great. Hmm. So you know, think about what happens there. I have to now go into the church and profess in front of all these people that publicly that I'm a Christian. And this is one of those churches where you got to walk up the aisle mm-hmm. in front of everybody and, you know, you know, give your testimony that you're becoming a Christian. And then you stand there while they all greet you. Well, I've been told I'm horribly inappropriate. Well, not horribly, but I've been appropriate in my dress. And, mm. you know, um, so I've already been shamed. And here I'm supposed to give this testimony to the church is very confusing for me at the start. Oh, wow. And I love how you described too your y'all's personalities with so how fun. each of you would react <laughs> to these situations. You know, he, 
I guess he would talk you off the ledge and he'd be like, ah, it's not so bad, babe. And this is what they probably meant. And with every passing comment, your anger would increase. (laughs) (laughs) And you were the, like you describe yourself as the like extreme idealist. And I think that's something that God was maybe teaching you throughout as well. But yeah, so so you guys move on, you kind of get solidified in there and and he takes a job at the church and I think it's worship, worship leading yeah. as a yeah. worship director and you guys. So maybe talk a little bit about that. What was that process like? And did that kind of reinforce the initial perception you had that day when she gave you that compliment of your dress? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that first, that first church we were at, we got involved with youth ministry and it, and it was tough. We, um, we weren't paid very much. We didn't have health, health insurance. And we, we all actually, I say this in the book, we almost went bankrupt. So we, we literally had to move on for, to another church. And, uh, so we get to the next one and we're going to go into a <laughs> youth ministry and music. Um, not a great combo job. <laughs> Just it, for any of our listeners, if you take one thing away from this entire year, <laughs> never sign up for youth ministry and worship ministry at the same time. I, I second that. But yes, continue. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, talk about being naive. Um, anyway, so we, we walk into that church and this is his, we're both music undergrads. We both have music majors, uh, music education degrees. So we're walking into this church, but to do music, but it's still new to us. Worship ministry is still brand new to us. Mm -hmm. And in the first few weeks, people are coming up to us and they're greeting us and, you know, welcome to the church. So glad to have you, all that sort of stuff. And we get this one lady who's a deacon's wife and she comes marching up the center aisle and her husband is staying out of view. Like he's in the foyer just where we can't see him, but he's kind of checking in on us every once in a while. (laughs) And she comes up to us and I'm expecting, Hey, welcome to the church. And the first words out of her mouth are, I don't know what God you're worshiping up there. Wow. Wow. Are you kidding me? Oh. Yeah. I think it was Seth That's, that was alluding yeah. to this a little bit. Um, I'm angry. Like by the second church, I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not dealing with this again. Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. So I immediately retort with, well, it better be the same God as you or it's the devil. And that's <laughs> forward. Diplomatic. And after this yes. one. <laughs> yeah. And my, that's when my husband's like talking me down from the ledge. He's like pushing me back. And he's oh like, later on, we're talking it through. And I'm like, this is an elderly woman in the church. And she, you know, I don't know how long she's been a Christian, but I'm guessing it's been a while. She should know better, right? Like there should be some kind of restraint, at least on her tongue. And I, I was just, guys, these are like, what I call the palatable examples of the things that go on in the church. You know, there's wow. other, there's other stuff that's a lot worse. What was it about your leading that made her make that comment? Was it the style of music or something else? Oh, you know it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, yes. the subjectivity of the music ministry is the bane of music ministers existence. <laughs> You're getting real now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. Everybody thinks that the music is supposed to be the the music of the church they grew up in. You know, the one that <laughs> right. makes them feel uh, like church in air quotes. There. Um, right. So it's it was really hard because I you know I couldn't find any arguments or you know like oh the drums overpowered the vocals or anything like that. So um, m- music was always such a personal preference, and it and it always about was about the individual and never about like how we could better worship God. It was never on mm. something objective that was like, well, sure. maybe the theology is off in the song or maybe this or that. It was such, a, it just really, mm. that was another, we didn't talk about that in the book so much, but it was something that over the years we got very discouraged by. And so those experiences, was that the main root of your um, beginning to kind of struggle in your faith after you have chosen Christ? You're working in the church and you come across some, uh, not favorable like, uh, personalities that kind of make you struggle. So was that the beginning of your, your doubting or? Yeah, it was the, so what it was the people, the encounters with people in the church that weren't, it wasn't just one-off encounters. Uh-huh. It was seeing these patterns within people who call themselves Christian of not even attempting to try to live like the scriptures were true. Wow. Um, yeah. And that was what, caused me to begin to say, I don't know if any of these people are actually believing that this is true. Like, I think they're saying it, but I don't know if they actually believe it. 
And that caused me some introspection, like, well, why do I say I believe it's true? I particularly found it compelling, your stories of when you would have questions mm-hmm. in the church, because we just actually had, uh, which I think you know, Brett, we had Brett Kunkel on the on the show a few weeks back and talked about dealing with doubt. And he, he told us, you know, just the importance of making places where people can safely wrestle through the issues of Christianity and, and how you, you know, can can really believe it in, you know, 2019 that sure. these things are true, the Bible's reliable and all those things. But we typically, or many times we don't get that in church, um, and you're kind of shunned if you have these questions. And that was your experience. In many of these churches, and, and particularly one, you could talk about that in general, but but there was one really interesting episode where you mentioned that you actually taught at a class or taught at oh, one of the small yeah. groups, and you were given different perspectives on the age of the earth. And she had brought a friend. And they immediately uh, had a guy address that and, and basically ban you as a, as a heretic, <laughs> brand <laughs> you as a heretic from that point on. But maybe, yeah, give give us a little bit of insight on that angle as well, because not only were you facing kind of the, you know, the normal church stuff that sure. sometimes we go through when people are immature and short-sighted, but you also encountered this, this anti-intellectual stream that mm. runs through many of our evangelical churches. That's the thing that really bothers me more is that, you know, there are you're always going to encounter people that you're going to call jerks and, you know, they're just jerks and they have that that personality flaw and uh, you're going to encounter controllers and people who are insecure. But what I was encountering was that uh, here I had an education undergrad. So, you know, it's music education, but I had educational psychology and, and the methods of how you teach things. And so my methodology was more exploratory. Like you, you give out information, but you guide students to, understanding the information for themselves. So I transferred that over to a scientific apologetics class that I was teaching at the at the church in which I was just offering, you know, different examples of the of the different theories on age age of the earth. And I, I thought it was appropriate uh, because we were in a community of scientists and engineers. And so I thought, hey, this was this is highly appropriate for these people because they mm. they can discuss these matters like what is time? How, what, you know, what's difficult for me to reconcile between my scientific knowledge and the Bible. So that's what the class was for, if it was for them to wrestle through these things. Um, but yeah, because I didn't take a certain stand on the age of the earth, which I wasn't intending to do, not being a pastor of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I was, it was brought up in a, you know, in typical, <laughs> well, at least in Baptist fashion, I don't know about other denominations, you know, when you're not there, then they bring up something that they have ought with. <laughs> so, you know, don't go to your brother and ought that you have ought with, right? bring it up at the next calendaring meeting. And that's what happened to us. Uh, to me personally, it was said that um, we were calendaring a student apologetics camp for the next year. And one of the leaders who had attended one session of my class said uh, he didn't think that we should, you know, support this camp because Mary Jo doesn't teach the Bible as God's word. She's a, you know, it's, it's, I said, well, that's wow. heresy. Like that, you're calling me a heretic is basically when I talked to him about it. Did you ask him for the chapter and verse where it states the age of the earth? <laughs> <laughs> we did have a conversation in which the words came out. He he was so hunkered down on Genesis, and I said, you know, but the Bible also teaches that you're supposed to go to your brother. You know, when you have a problem with them, you're supposed to confront them one on one. And if that person won't listen and bring another person along, I said, so what do you just like, do I believe more of the Bible is true than you do? Because I actually mm. came to you <laughs> and said, you have to, you know, we actually have to work through this as brother and sister in Christ. So I was kind of teasing, but also saying like, hey, you don't get to pick and choose this whole thing. You have to hold yourself accountable to the teachings of the Bible. You don't just get to hunker down on one verse. Yeah, I thought that was such an interesting story, and it goes on from there. You bring an bring an atheist friend to another uh, study, and they kind of grill him in front of everybody, make him feel bad. But you know, so it all kind of leads seemingly in the book to this um, tipping point where you actually came to a place where you said, "You know what? I need to really find out if this is this thing true." And you almost lean toward wanting to find out that it wasn't. 
Um, so you could walk away from it and maybe kind of, kind of a confident intellectual, like, okay, I've, I've looked into it. It's false. Now I can move on to something and forget this church thing. Cause I don't, it's, it's not working for me anyways. Can you talk about that process and, and what that led you to? Yeah, that process was extremely messy mm-hmm. and un- unclear all the way through. Um, cause there were times I thought, well, I'm just having doubt. And so I'm just looking for answers to my doubt. And when I get those, I'll be fine, you know, one way or the other. And I think there was a little bit of hubris going on there because, you know, as a, as a human being, I can't really separate my rationality from my emotions or desire. Even, even when I talk about, oh yeah, surely I can be objective, right? There was a time when I thought my journey was just about answering hard questions. And when I got the answers, because Christianity, when I found Christianity to be true, you know, or false, I would just commit to that. But at the same time, I hadn't recognized, and it took some thought backwards on this, I hadn't recognized that I really was upset mm-hmm. with um, where I lived. I didn't want to live in the South anymore. I didn't fit in. I never fit in down there. Um, I was upset. I missed my home. Um, mm-hmm. I, I missed my, the people uh, that everybody makes fun of in the Northwest, but I love them. <laughs> I love their weirdness. You know, I love that easy target. Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love their lack of pretense. Now I'm not dissing mm-hmm. on my Southern buddies because I've met some really great people over the years. I just didn't feel like I fit in. And mm-hmm. so yeah. I think there was a desire behind some of this that I was not acknowledging, um, which was to, I just wanted to leave it. And in my mind, I had built up that things would be so much easier if I could step away from all of this mess and all of these personalities in the church that were vying for their, you know, attention and and vying for leadership and control and you know affirmation and all this stuff, if I could just walk away from that, go back to what I was assuming was a simpler life of atheism, hmm. and just leave it all behind. And I didn't really acknowledge that until later on when I was reflecting back on it. I thought, you know what, there was really a desire there hmm. uh, to leave because I didn't really, I I didn't like the people. And I wanted to get away from them. And so if I could figure out that um, atheism was true, then I could I could walk away and I could do it with a smugness because it would be, oh, they were right all along. You guys are just using this as authoritarianism and I can step away and say I'm free from all of that. And uh, then I could just clean break, right? Mm. Uh, it wouldn't be, that's my hubris. Like it wouldn't be clean break because my husband was a minister. So that was going to be messy. <laughs> wow. And while you're walking through this process, how is your husband's faith? Is it intact? Was he, mm. you know, because when Seth would um, have his doubt struggles, I'd be like, what do you mean you struggle with God? We don't struggle with God. And that was so new to me and I was tempted to freak out, but I, I didn't. But when you were going through this in some of the chapters, you were able to communicate to him. And I loved how supportive and understanding he was. But um, how was his faith during this journey that you were going through? Well, Roger's faith, and I, I describe it at one point in the section, I think, on doubt. Like He's more trusting in people, okay. and he's more trusting in God. Okay. And uh, so he, did, he wasn't wavering. Uh, and I also kept a lot of this quiet. So okay. he didn't know about it. He didn't really know about it until I said, hey, I'm going to get a degree in apologetics. And he's like, what? You're right. going to get a what? Right. What's <laughs> what co- yeah. Why are you doing that? And I'm like, because. And I finally had to spill the beans about what was going on. But he's, um, yeah, I think Roger's more trusting. Okay. And that's not a bad quality in no. a person. No. That's a good quality. And I um, sometimes I'm a little envious that he is more trusting than mm. I am. I tend to be uh, skeptical, leaning, cynical. And that's not a good, good mm. place for people to be to discern truth, mm. for one. Mm. So when you're telling him, okay, I'm doing this program, and I'm, I'm guessing you explain, okay, so because I need to find out this truth, I'm going to seek to really, really settle these questions and doubts that I have. He wasn't in any way moved or swayed. Did it scare him? Was he pretty much supportive? What were his emotions like during that? Um, he's, he's Mr. Like fix it. So, okay. What are you going to do? Okay. I, Mm. so that means that's how much money, how are we going to do this? So he went into crunching numbers. He went into, I don't know why you want to do this, but it really, he's not used to seeing me make big decisions like that so quickly. 
Hmm. which is what happened with this. So I think it caught him off guard. Okay. And he's like, wow. Um, okay, well, let's, let's try to figure out how to make this happen. But he didn't go through a lot of questioning with me on that. I think he had probably put two and two together that over the years he had heard me share my um, disgust at what I saw in the church okay. and what I saw with leadership. And so I think he was putting that together and saying, ah, mm. she's, this is how she's dealing with this. So he was supportive. <laughs> it scared me. It scared me how supportive he was. I was like, you're not going to push back. <laughs> Panic. Right. Exactly. You know, one thing that stood out to me, I think it was in the notes. I don't It might be in the book, but you called it an anti-deconversion story. And that's one of the things that, you know, we, we've been addressing on the podcast lately where, you know, we're kind of seeing these high profile deconversions, uh, people walking away from the faith. And many times it seems like they are rooted in sort of what you experienced. They were in a church culture that was anti-intellectual. They had the normal human problems. And so something bad happens to them and they kind of throw it all out and uncritically walk into atheism without understanding the underpinnings of the atheistic worldview that basically erodes every reason they're walking into atheism. But they don't tend to see that self-refutation. But you, I think one of the things that was interesting about your story that makes it a bit unique is that you somehow walked into a more thoughtful Christianity and you understood at some point at least that man, if I were to walk into atheism, it wouldn't be the the kind of easy step into it that I initially thought because it would actually get rid of everything I've always taken for granted. Can you maybe talk a little bit about about that and, and how it relates to some of these deconversion stories you're seeing? Yeah, that's, that's so good, um, what you picked up on there uh, and the way that you framed it, because that was my concern when I started reading deconversion stories um, was the uncritical walk away where people are leaving Christianity, but they're, but I'm not sure that they're leaving, leaving Christianity. I think they're, they're smuggling in some of the Christian philosophical framework Mm -hmm. into their new life away from Christianity. Um, There's actually, there's a great book out on that. I want to mention called stealing from God by Mm. Frank Turek. Okay. In which, in which he covers the, the things that are borrowed out of a Christian philosophical framework in an in these like new atheist beliefs. And he calls them the crimes of atheism. It's an acronym for like each, each letter stands for one thing that's being borrowed. So I want to mention that, but yeah, it was, um, for me, looking at atheism and, you know, who really introduced me to this kind of thinking is like William Lane Craig discussing the moral law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and starting to consider uh, Craig does some talks on the moral law and um, the value and meaning of human life mm-hmm. uh, void of God. And so I started looking into that because that going back to my initial like what drew me to God was there was that element of, do I matter? How do I know my life has ultimate meaning? Is this all there is? I just live and die and, and that's it. And so looking at atheism, I began to really look at what, what do atheists say about, um, you know, does life have ultimate meaning and value? Are there, is there such things as good and evil? Cause we all seem to live like there are, we, we make judgments and we say they shouldn't treat people that way or, you know, that, will say things like somebody died too young, assuming that there's some kind of goodness to life or a standard length of life that's good. So we use these like these concepts all the time. And I was wondering where I was getting those from. And I, I came to discover that if I were to step into atheism, th- like you were mentioning, that disrupts and actually eradicates any foundation for things like good and evil. Um, so that there's things that I should do or shouldn't do, or that there's way there's something that's good. Like it's good to be valued and loved and those kinds of things. I couldn't, I couldn't ground those things. Mm -hmm. So, um, in atheism and I, I realized, yeah, that to walk away from Christianity would mean I would actually have to accept an alternative view like atheism. And that was the struggle for me. I wasn't struggling between like Buddhism and Christianity or anything. I was struggling with atheism in particular. And, uh, yeah, I, I not only could I not ground uh, human value, dignity, meaning to human life, I could in atheism. I also couldn't ground how I trusted my own reasoning skills. Ooh, that's a good one. Mm. And that one was big for me because, um, you know, there are the argument is that 
from an evolutionary perspective that we have just arrived at this point through a series of blind and personal processes. Guys like uh, the Oxford biologist Richard Dawkins will say this just straight up. So there's no design, there's no intention for how natural selection was working. It's just a survival mechanism responding to environmental factors. Mm. So if that's the case, then you know, where I'm at in life with my thoughts and my reasoning has all gotten here through irrational processes that are not guided and have no purpose or intention other than survival. So I began to think, okay, my rationality comes from irrational sources. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Right. And if, if that's true, whatever that would mean, but if that's true, then I couldn't trust my rationality to lead me to anything true at all, or to, I wouldn't know what's true or false or what those things, if those things actually have meaning. And that not only destroys Christianity, that would destroy the truth of atheism as well, because you couldn't know that as true either. So not being able to trust my reasoning abilities thrust me back towards belief in a Christian God who is a personal, intelligent creator who designed the universe and made beings in his own image so that we, he has rationality, and so therefore we have rationality. That makes more sense deductively. You know, like it, it makes more sense. So um, those were the kinds of things that really I had to consider about atheism. Hmm. And they're the kinds of things that provide a roadblock for me of ever moving towards that direction. And that's what I don't see in some of those deconversion stories. Where is the serious grappling with a universe void hmm of the grounding for objective morality or void of the grounding for trusting your reasoning capabilities. I don't see a lot of that going on. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, it's odd sometimes how little thought is put into it from that perspective. When I, when I encounter people that have moved away from Christianity personally, or even, you know, kind of the big stories, you're like, man, have they not, have they not really grappled with these issues? Have they not really read the Christian scholars on this stuff? Because I think that's where, that's why I like this book so much. You, you actually get, you, you weave these arguments into your story in the, mm-hmm. in the kind of the mental dialogue. And, and I think you discover that when you dive deeper into these things, it, it, you know, you don't get every question you ever had answered, but there are really good, reasonable, plausible answers put forth by Christian scholars. In fact, I think you would say this too, but it seems like Christianity, if you are merely using your reason would still be the most plausible worldview. Um, outside of even having experience with God. And, and that's what I, that's what I get from your book. But I, I noticed one of the things I wanted to ask you, you kind of dialed in on the, on the arguments for the resurrection and the, you, you discussed the problem of evil and in your talks with a uh, professor uh, clay, uh, I forget his full name at a uh, Biola, but um, one of your early projects, you had to find someone and basically email them back and forth about the resurrection. Can you just describe that a little bit and what you were going through at the time when, when you were told you had to do that? (laughs) Oh man. Well, okay. So I am from the Northwest and religion is considered kind of private. So, uh, it's a private conversation and you can believe whatever you want to believe, just keep it to yourself. So the original assignment with Dr. Clay Jones was a choice. You could have a a private email conversation with somebody who did not believe Jesus rose from the dead. And then your goal is to engage them in that argument, like to try to convince the persuade that Jesus did through the evidence. And then the other option was to do a public blog defending the resurrection. And I was like, Oh oh, no, (laughs) (laughs) no, what are you crazy? (laughs) I wanted nothing to do with that side of things. That's like, then everybody will know what a freak I am. And I don't like, no, thank you. I don't want to be public with my Christianity. So, um, yeah, I actually did that private email conversation. And so, yeah, just, I mean, just, hear that. I did not want to be like, I, I just kind of want to have my nice little conversation mm-hmm. with somebody <laughs> privately. So I asked this instructor at a school that I'm teaching at where I'm a music teacher and she's teaching some of my um, flute players private lessons. And I asked her, you know, if she would do this with me. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, not only does she want to, but her her husband is an atheist philosophy professor. Wow. Well. <laughs> <Not> perfect. <laughs> 
It was like it was really. I think God was setting you up, man. That is a sure setup. The stories in here are are unbelievable, like that. And y'all go back and forth for like page after page, like fifteen pages. And you even said, I think, in the book that you, you know, you were probably a little overzealous and like trying to like dot every single i, cross every single t. If you were to go back and approach it now, would you do what you did then, or how would you approach it differently? Yeah, no, I would not approach it the way I did. Back then, I was just trying to like f- show off my knowledge and, you know, prove the argument and win the day. And uh, that's not today. Today, I would probably approach her with her questions about the resurrection and, you know, try to get an understanding of why she didn't think it was plausible. So mm-hmm. where's that coming from? And, you know, how do you know the things that you're saying um, are true? Where is this coming from? I would spend a lot more time in like a Socratic dialogue where Uh, it's more questioning back and forth. Yeah. Because what I did in that email was just ridiculous. It was like, I was giving her a research paper. (laughs) (laughs) She had to dig through and then she gave me one back and it was just, I don't see it as productive conversation, although it did lead to more friendship between us, um, kind of opened the door up to more friendship Mm. than we had had before. That's cool. So you talked about some of your early experiences with church and stuff. Where are you now? Have you found a church in Portland or do you, have you seen churches kind of do it well? Yeah, that's one of the things about being in the community of um, like the apologetics community is I have a lot of exposure to other churches. And so I've been able to see churches. Of course, I'm not in the nitty gritty of those churches, but I see churches who seem to be doing well. Um, discipling their people well, paying attention to spiritual formation, things like that. Um, But where we're at now, we're actually um, taking on a church revitalization. So we're worth a church that knows that they have made choices that have led them to a point where they've got to make different choices or they're not going to survive. So we actually came out here on a three-year, like a three-year contract with them to see if we could help uh, get them because they're they're literally on the path to dying and closing their doors. So we're going to see what we can do if we can be of some help and and turn things around. Personally, where I'm at with the church is like I have recognized that it's like a marriage, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. it's like a marriage relationship. You know, <laughs> uh, I love her. I don't always like her. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's fair. Um, there are days when I feel like I totally belong there. And then there are days I'm wondering what in the world am I thinking? (laughs) What I've gotten to is, um, you know, from going through all these struggles with these arguments, and this is kind of what I hope the book does is, and showing you how these arguments affect my life and affect my thinking. Like I get to the point where like with the problem of evil, there's evil in the world and people are, there's fallen human beings and they are going to continue to do the wrong thing no matter what. They're just going to continue on this path all the way until resurrection. Even those people who profess Christ, they're going to make errors. They're going to sin. So what do I do with that? They're going to hurt me still. I'm still going to find people in the church that hurt me. Right now, I'm, I'm kind of adopting the um, Sermon on the Mount view, which is where Jesus says in Luke 6, do unto others as you want others to do unto you. You know, um, that's in the love your enemies, <laughs> do good to those who aren't doing good to you. Yeah, There it is. He's telling us how to engage even with the church. You know, if many times I think we focus that outside the church, <laughs> but that's, that's for everybody. And so I, I try to think back to times in my marriage when I've been ridiculous and Roger, you know, I've said really hurtful things, especially about ministry and and about him in ministry. And he did not leave me. He didn't walk away from me. Mm. He loved me sacrificially, even when it hurt. So I try to apply that to my church situation in that I treat them how I would want to be treated when I'm at my worst. Wow. Man, that's really so good. Beautiful. And I thought, you know, it reminded me of that Dallas Willard quote where he would say, uh, you know, one reason you should go to church is because you'll learn how to love your enemies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh man, he's so good. Right. And uh yeah, so you know, I think that's the you really do strike a balance in this book mm-hmm. because what I one of the things I notice about people is they'll realize, 
you know, that we that we're more than just intellect, we're emotion and we have biases, but and then they'll throw away the intellect and, and basically adopt like a postmodern, you know, everything's theory laden, so there is no objective knowledge and truth. But you acknowledge the bias and the emotion, but you still say there is an important role that reason plays and it's mm-hmm. a gift and we have to cultivate it. And you also strike that balance with regard to human nature by the end. Like you just said, it, it's kind of like, it reminded me of Pascal where he says, you know, we're higher than the angels and we're the, the, we're the scum of the earth at the same time, you know? And, um, I feel like you balance that in this book. Um, do you feel like, and you've been doing apologetic ministry now for a while. Has that impacted how you do that ministry? Like how do you do reason and, bias and emotion and all that stuff in this world these days, like in 2019, how are you working through that? Yeah, that's a big one, man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that goes back to like Francis Bacon in the 1600s and his, Mm. the new organine where he's trying to show the idols of the mind and what causes us to not be able to find truth. And so I think, I think for me, uh, I just recognize what kind of thing I am. You know, I'm a human being. I'm in my mid forties. I'm not, I don't have all the answers. Um, and that's okay. I'm at where I'm at. Uh, but that I need to continue to try to work towards truth because I know as a fallen human being, I'm working against myself first, right? Like I'm my own worst enemy most of the time. And a lot of that is because I think I'm right. I think I'm right about a lot of stuff that in heaven, I'm going to be like, Oh yeah. (laughs) Wasn't right about that either. <laughs> so um, that's one of the things is I just try to keep a perspective of I could be wrong. And uh, I think that's really hard for a lot of people, especially with, you know, walking through what they believe and why they believe it. Uh, I think they feel like, you know, the word doubt is kind of set against the word like faithless. It's faithless. So you're either faithful or you have doubt. And, and that's not the case. I would say I've landed where Uh, There's an author named Daniel Taylor, and he wrote a book called The Skeptical Believer. Mm. And I think that's kind of where I'm at. I'm a skeptical believer. Mm. Um, So I still question things. I still am searching for truth, but I'm acknowledging that sometimes I know my desire is going to get in the way. I know my emotions. Here's a Dallas Willard for you. Emotions sit on the front row of our lives like unruly children clamoring for attention. That's good. Mm. There's a Dallas Willard quote, and he he's right. You know, sometimes you think you're being rational, but you're actually feeding your defensiveness or you're feeding your own emotion. And uh, so I think just you're not going to totally beat it because you're human. So I think just having in mind that, you know, you're not you don't have it all together. You don't have God's perspective. You don't have a super objective viewpoint. You still have the subjectivity of being human. So just acknowledging it and then still trying to search for what's true is that's where I'm at. Yeah. So you're saying, you're saying, you know, we have to deal with that. We understand it's going to be perfect, but there still is potential to sometimes gain objective truth and knowledge at times. (laughs) Yeah. And I, yeah, exactly. Just be realistic about your expectations. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. And speaking of God's eye view, uh, I know we don't have much long, but you really, you had a chapter on Nabil uh, Qureshi and, and uh, David Wood and how you just kind of got thrown together with these guys, started doing d- debates with them. It's oh, it's That was so such a fun chapter. And I hope I hope people read this book, even for just that chapter. It's so fun. But, um, you know, if, if people don't know his background, Nabil, maybe you could tell us a little bit about him. And um, But that was one of the things that was tough for me, watching his passing um, yeah. I think it was either a year ago or two years ago. And, but, uh, you know, that's one of those things again, where you're like, Oh man, that that's a tough one. God, I, I'm not sure to, what to do with that, but I, I do know studying the stuff you've studied, I think gives you the philosophical background where you can at least deal with the emotions in a healthy way, even while not understanding what's going on. But can you just give us a quick, uh, story of maybe meeting those guys, your relationship. <laughs> I blame David and Nabil for me being in ministry at all, <laughs> wow. at the level that I'm at. And I, I told Nabil that um, when he had come to Houston for treatment, we uh, when we still lived there, we were close by to him. So I was like, you know, you know, you got me into all mm. this mess. <laughs> and uh, you were the one, like Nabil was the one that actually um, challenged me to my first public debate with a Muslim. And so I was like, you're the one that's responsible for all this. And he smiled and said, oh, yeah, that was me, wasn't it? Wow. (laughs) Um, 
but so just real quick background on these guys. Um, so I, you know, my, the story is that I go off to Biola looking for answers to my doubt and, uh, I get there and that first summer that I'm on campus for the degree program, the <laughs> Nabil and David are there. And so I, I meet them <laughs> and I, I include in the, the book, the story of, first of all, meeting David uh, over lunch mm -hmm. and David telling me his background as being a sociopath. And then he went to jail for attempting to murder his father and became a Christian in, uh, in jail. And then he tells me, you know, like most people move away from me at this point. And I was like, well, I'm not going anywhere. So <laughs> <laughs> just keep on. Oh. So then we went out, uh, David, Nabil and I, and one of our, um, classmates, Keith, we all went out to dinner. And this was where I really, that night, this was where I really got an image of what these two were like. Like I really started to get perspective on how these two guys were like bigger, they're larger than life personalities. I mean, I was so shocked. They taught everything they talked about that night was about the debates they were having with Muslims or atheists. And it was all theology and people they had met and who they were, were you know, who they had discussed salvation with. And and I was like, wow, they're not talking about sports or like <laughs> politics. They're actually talking about actually getting out there and witnessing to people. And that's what interests them. And I mean, they were the real deal. And so I, I was really, I was first, I was overwhelmed because the, you know, Nabil's background story of leaving um, the Islamic faith and coming to Christianity. Uh, I was like, wow, I don't, I don't have anything like that. Like I'm not, <laughs> I don't. That's amazing. And then David, being a sociopath who attempted to murder his father, winds up in jail, meets a Christian, and then becomes a uh, Christian while trying to outfast mm. and outdo the other, the Christian guy. I was like, wow, what's my story? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Portland. Enough said. <laughs> I, I, I was really intimidated by these two like larger than life guys, but I was really drawn to them because they immediately... Uh, embraced me for my ideas. Mm. Like they immediately respected me and were interested in the kinds of things that I wanted to talk about, like the theological things and the philosophical things. And I really hadn't had much of that experience, if at all, in the church until I met these two. Mm. So I asked them if I could review their debates and uh, they said, sure, maybe we'll post one to our, uh, back then it was their up and coming blog was called Anastasis Apologetics, which they quickly trashed because it's a Greek word for resurrection and nobody knows what it means. So they, <laughs> they went to Acts 17, which people know more. But so they posted it to um, actually, I believe they posted it to Answering Infidels. Uh, it was an old, older website of David's. Mm. And that drew me. I didn't like sort of get involved. Like I was immediately thrown into their world. And then after they saw that review, they just started to, they trusted me and they started to bring me out for helping with debates. Um, and then just sneakily like moving me out of just administration into timekeeping, into moderating debates, and then into shoving me right into my own debates. Unbelievable. That's I think amazing. that was their evil plan all along. <laughs> right. It's crazy, oh. though. I think you were uh, you were definitely chosen and uh, sure. predestined. If you read this book, you will become a Calvinist if you're not already. Hey. Oh. Wait, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I know you got to run, Mary Jo. We man, I'd love to have part two. We got a part two of this sometime down the road, maybe in a few months, because I had so many more questions I wanted to ask you and so many more personal things we wanted to talk through. But thank you for spending time with us today. And the book is called Why I Still Believe, and it will be on all the outlets, right? Kindle, audiobook, physical, is it everything? Did y'all do audio? Yeah, we did the whole kit and caboodle. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I highly recommend this book. Grab it. You will not be disappointed. And thank you so much, Mary Jo, for hanging with us today. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me on. It's been fun. Thanks for joining us this week on Free Mind. We'd love to hear from you and interact with you. You can do that on Instagram or Twitter at FreeMindFM and on our Facebook page, FreeMindPodcastFM. And if you haven't checked us out on Apple Podcasts and given us a five-star rating, we'd appreciate if you could do that. Five stars with a comment on Apple Podcasts helps us be discovered by those looking for Christian and apologetic resources. And... Don't forget to check out our Patreon. You can support the show there and get access to bonus episodes that we've posted on there over the weeks. You can find that at patreon.com slash freemindfm. And you'll find links in show notes to Mary Jo Sharp, her book, and everything that we talked about in this episode. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week. Come on, come on.